0: But in the meanwhile, I was trying to find a way out. So I spoke to the chief secretary and I told him the entire background. He said, file So we were trying to buy time and see how it could be done. So I sent the file. To him. Now the minister did not have the opportunity to meet the chief secretary. I don't know what was the reason, but he went and spoke to the chief, chief minister. I don't know what transpired between them, but I was transferred out. Now my chief secretary was very upset. He said, just because you wanted to save that officer, you have been transferred out. He called me. So I asked him, sir, how does it make a difference? For a civil servant, transfer is like death. It is inevitable. Something which is inevitable, why worry about it? It will happen.
1: Hi, guys. Welcome to the Knowledge Night's podcast. This is your host, Simran Sardeva, And today, I, along with Pratham, my co-host, will interview one of the most eminent personalities, Anand Saroop is an ex-IS officer, and he has served in bureaucracy for around 38 years. He has written two books, Not Just a Civil Servant and Ethical Dilemma of a Civil Servant. He serves as the founding chairman of Nexus of Good Organization. Apart from that, he has been associated and served at various positions in government of Uttar Pradesh and Indian government, including Education and coal Secretary. So good evening, sir. Very warm welcome to the Knowledge Nights podcast. And we are honored to have you here. And uh, I'm Simran, and I'm currently in my final year pursuing literature. And Pratham, go ahead. Right.
2: Uh, uh, I'm in high school uh, in class 11th and very much interested in entrepreneurship, uh, startups. And so let's start. Uh, and welcome, sir, on the Knowledge Nights show. Uh, we have, uh, pleasure to have you. Uh, so let's start uh, you know, diving deep into our journey. Uh, why did you choose to become an IAS officer?
0: Uh, if you've read my first book, not just a civil servant, there is a chapter on why did I become an IAS officer. I became an IAS officer because my father wanted me to become an IAS officer. I had no clue about the service to begin with. It was he who took that decision. It was his dream that his son should become an IAS officer. And then I made it into my own dream and became an IAS officer. So I became an IAS officer because my dad wanted me to become an IAS officer, and subsequently I was passionate about becoming an IAS officer. I became an IAS officer, uh,
2: sir. But you know, you first went into IPS, uh, and then uh, you know, after one year you planned into IAS. Why did you, uh, it is the reason? Is it the reason that you know, your I, father wanted I, to become an IAS? I,
0: I didn't. I didn't qualify for the IAS. My rank was much below for me to get into the I.S. next year i reappeared i got a better rank and got into the I.S. i wanted to get into the I.S. in the first year itself but i didn't qualify and that's quite a lesson for me so i have had my failures in my life my father and i thought that i had failed uh, if i had not qualified for the I.S. for many it would believe that getting into the ips would have was good enough a success us, it wasn't so i i took it as a failure learned from the mistakes that i committed in the first year and i keep telling youngsters that all of us fail at some point in time. All of us commit mistakes. People who succeed are those that learn from the mistakes. So mistakes and failures are common occurrence in any human beings' life.
2: Yes, sir. Uh, but uh, you know, you after that, you worked hard and then uh, you shifted into IAS. Uh, what was that phase? You know, uh, you know, you were, you know, like a little bit depressed uh, that, you know, you didn't get into IAS. I, was, I, I,
0: I wasn't depressed at all, in fact. I remember I had come to Delhi and gone to the UPSC where I saw the result and discovered that I had not made it to the IS. I took the train back to Aligarh where my father was posted and where I was making all the preparations. I must have reached around 8 o'clock in the night. I set up my table and got down to business straight away. I was convinced that I would be able to make it to the IS. I then reflected on why I didn't make it to the IS. Clearly identified those shortcomings and overcame those shortcomings.
2: Uh, but uh, uh, so you have been uh, in this field for about thirty-eight years. That's that's a huge amount of time. Uh, so I believe you could give the bird's eye perspective of you know what is IS all about to uh, those who are aspiring or you know, in, you know
0: want to. Okay, I let me start with the conclusion first. In the last chapter of my book, I write: If I were to be born again, I would like to be an IS officer. All because there's no other service in the world that provides such enormous amount of satisfaction in helping the poorest of the poor of the country. There was a scheme that I was doing called the Rashtriya Swasthya Bhima Yojana. It was a health insurance scheme. And I was impacting about 35 million people in the country. I don't think any service, any vocation, anywhere in the world will allow you to do that. And that's the huge opportunity. And I, I had a number of Bharat Ratna moments in my career, We meaning thereby the sense of satisfaction that I derived out of serving the poorest of the poor was absolutely phenomenal. A number of instances have been mentioned in both in both of my books, including the ethical dilemmas of a civil servant, where I describe these Bharatramtna moments. Now, what are these Bharatramtna moments? These are moments when you feel very kicked. You feel very good about it. Each individual goes through those moments. But in the eyes, you get opportunities for many such moments of helping and assisting people who are absolutely helpless, can't do anything to you, will find it difficult even to say thank you to you. But you derive enormous amount of satisfaction about helping them. So there are a number of instances of you, time permitting, subsequently I'll narrate a couple of them for you to understand what I mean by these bhajratamu.
2: Uh, sir so what about uh, sir um, yes uh, you give the conclusion but what about the birds eye perspective uh, that you are you are doing yeah of course
0: okay. it, it, uh, is, it, it is my 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 second book starts with a couplet and that says uh, it it starts by saying si ke se Yahan bhi chalane hai, parinde bhi bachane. that's the quintessential yeah. dilemma that's the quintessential challenge that a civil servant faces he has to perform in very difficult set of circumstances. But the challenges are so, uh, so good, I should say, that they make you learn so much that over a period of time, you are able to overcome those challenges. So in the beginning of your career, you face different type of challenges. As you go up the ladder and you become a part of the policy making the policy decisions team, then the challenges are different. So you, the variety of challenges is quite amazing in the IS and challenges range from handling a law and order situation uh, as a young officer, you face that as also handling the cold crisis where scams were happening all over the place and you were tasked to clear the mess in the coal sector or handling the uh, mafias, unknown mafias of the education sector. So the challenges of variety is absolutely phenomenal. And it was a pleasure trying to find those to begin with, there were dilemmas. To begin with, I was not sure what path to be taken. But as one went along, as one gained an experience, there were no dilemmas in my mind. I was very clear as to what I wanted to do. And I did that because I was aware of the consequences of the actions that I was to take, and I was prepared to take on those consequences. The bottom line gradually was, do your job. You have absolutely no control over results. And hence, enjoy the moments that you're in, because that's where you have control over results you don't know. So do that. To begin with, it was not very easy. I remember as a youngsters, youngster, till class 7, I did not win a single medal, certificate or a, or, or a cup. And I used to feel very frustrated. And my mother used to tell me, your time will come. All you have to do is to focus on what you've got to do. And that's when she told me about Kaj Mandi Maafish jana I didn't understand the meaning then. But as I grew old, I started understanding the implication of what she told me. What wonderful couplet is this? Why unnecessarily bother about issues over which you have no control? So focus on what you can. And if you get a positive result, which normally you would, then that's an icing on the cake. But the real cake is your, those moments, those work that you're doing. Once you start doing what you're doing, I think you've arrived. That's what one has to try. Those were the moments that I got in the IS. I got those. I enjoyed every, each and every one of assignment. I didn't ask for any assignment during my career. I never went to a politician asking for a posting. It's for the politician's job to post me where he or she wanted me to be posted. And thereafter, I developed an interest in that. Now, it is not necessary that you may like everything from the word go. You may have a different point of view, but you can develop a liking for whatever you are doing. And once into the get into the habit of enjoying what you're doing. Like, for example, I'm conversing with you all. Now, it could be a very boring exercise for somebody, but I'm doing it because I'm enjoying it. If I want to enjoy it, I won't do it. I'm under no compulsion to do it, but I love interacting with youngsters because I can get a lot of energy from them. I can see where the world is going, where the country is going. I can see the passion in a lot of youngsters and I love interacting with
2: uh, yes, uh, I have gone through many of your talks uh, in TEDx talk, uh, uh, and people should uh, definitely go through them. Uh, uh, also, that uh, talk in IIM, uh, and they were wonderful. But you talked about uh, challenges that you have faced, uh, the stories of these challenges. Uh, they were wonderful. Uh, and I would like to uh, uh, get some more stories. What, what was the toughest challenge that you
0: faced? Uh, Uh, It may not be easy for me to pinpoint and say, this was the toughest challenge. I can narrate a couple of instances for you to understand the nature of challenges that a civil servant faces. That will give you a flavor of what those challenges are. Right in the beginning of my career, this was in 1984, and your parents may have just been born, actually. You won't certainly be there. So, uh, it was 1984, and Indira Gandhi had been assassinated. She was the Prime Minister then. And I was posted as Subdivisional magistrate in a district called Hardoi. It was in any case very notorious for criminal activities. But when this assassination happened, thereafter, all hell seems to have broken loose. The ruling party leaders in the district were wreaking havoc. They were burning down the properties of minority community. They were harassing them. All sorts of things were happening. So as Subdivisional magistrate in charge of law and order, I started taking them to task. I used to take round, and I got to know that a ruling party MLA was behind all that uh, arson that was taking place. So the dilemma that I faced was whether I should make out a case, National Security Act case against him. And after deliberating for a while, I decided to make out a case. Now this was unthinkable because this MLA was extremely powerful. I made out this case and sent it across to the district master, who was the deciding authority. Sure enough, this Emily got the wind of it and he was very upset. So he went to the state headquarters and sure enough, I was called to Lucknow to explain my conduct by a senior officer. He Mm -hmm. asked me why had I made a case. So I explained to him, he heard me out, but then finally he said, you withdraw the file. Now, I did not understand the logic of withdrawing the file. I said, I have uh, given my views on the file and the district master overruled, but they insisted. I, again, this was the second dilemma. I decided not to uh, take the file back. And sure enough, when I returned back to the district, I was transferred out. I was very hurt because I thought I had done nothing wrong. And I was a young officer, very impressionistic. So I felt let down. Now, this was my reaction to a transfer at that point in time. I got transferred out. Now you fast track it to next uh, seven years when I was district magistrate of Lake Here, a similar incident had happened with totally different consequences here. A president of the ruling party, district president of the ruling party, wanted to take out a funeral procession of a person who had been murdered. And this was Ramjan Bhumi time where all the tension was there in the district. I was sure that if that procession was allowed, there would be riots in this city. So I tried to convince this gentleman that please don't do that. But he insisted, so I had no option but to arrest him. No, arresting the district president of a ruling party is not the done thing. It's, I can't visualize it happening now. Then of course it was considered to be virtually impossible, but I did that. And I had matured sufficiently. So I had told my wife that you are aware that I could be transferred out because I've done this. She was also prepared. She said, fair enough transfer. So on. Uh, late in the evening at around 10 o'clock, the chief minister called me up and he asked me, why did I arrest his president? So I explained the whole situation to him. Then he was insistent on releasing him. I told him, sir, I can't release him because it will create a riot here. Then he asked me, what can be done? So, I told him, why don't you speak to this president and tell him not to take out this position? This is your government. If something adverse happens in the district, you will get a bad name. So, I don't know what happened. He didn't appear very satisfied, but he put the phone down. And I was all mentally prepared to get transferred next morning because of my past experience. Next morning, I got a call telling me that the concerned gentleman didn't want to take out the position. He recalled it. Probably the chief minister had spoken. So the whole situation was, uh, you know, normalized two months down the line, the same chief minister whose president I had put behind the bars gave me the award for the best district magistrate in the state. Now these action taken in both the cases, almost eight years apart was exactly the same, but the consequences were totally different. In one case I was transferred out. In another case I was rewarded. So I was gradually coming to this conclusion that the consequences are not in your hand and you should take a call of your own conscience and do what you thought was right now these are two challenges almost similar in nature my actions were similar but the consequences were very different but i don't know whether you are youngsters a young, you are a youngster whether you had the occasion to read ethical dilemmas of civil servant there are 70 such incidents narrated in the book so when you do find time please read that book you will understand what i am saying of course given the positive time i can't keep explaining every aspect of challenges that i have faced but if you read the book you will find it there so the bottom line in the book is whereas you do face all these challenges the political social whatever if you are clear headed and if you have clarity of thought and if you are convinced about what you're doing if you're going by your conscience in the long run it stands to benefit i benefited enormously because uh, never did a politician ask me for doing a wrong thing because they knew that i will not do a wrong thing there were occasions where I, sp- I could speak my mind out, which a normal civil servant would not. I have not said what I say what I did was right. In the book, in fact, I have on occasions questions my questioned my own conduct. But I did what I thought was right at that point in time. Maybe as I reflect upon some of the incidents, I may have done something different. So, as I say, ethics is not frozen in all times and places. Your own value system can change over a period of time. You can start a non-vegetarian, but become a vegetarian. The value system in Kerala for beef eating would be different from value system. In UP where beef eating is not allowed. So there are no frozen ethical value systems. You have your own personal value system. So long as there's no disconnect between what your value system and what you're doing, the chances are that you will succeed. The problem arises when there is a disconnect between what you think is right and what you're doing. That's where most of the problem arises.
2: Yes, uh, so you talked about uh, transfers in many of your talks. Uh, you you are also you know from UP government to union government, then coal, uh, coal secretary to education secretary, and you also senior your co- colleagues you know uh, getting transfers. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's like a, you know you are raising a, a kid and you are then told you know there is another kid and it's also needs uh, needs to be raised and you know, now, now go there. It's 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 like an emotionally challenging process. Uh, not, uh, I mean, uh, how
0: do you handle it emotionally? So see, I'll, I'll give you another example where how I started understanding transfers. In the first case, yes, I was upset. But gradually, I started having a totally different approach to transfer. I was posted as Secretary of Horticulture on my return from Delhi. This is 2003. I had a minister who's very corrupt. So one day he sent me an order asking me to suspend a deputy director without assigning anything. He said, suspend him. So I rang him up. I asked him, sir, you asked me to to suspend him. What is the reason? He said, he hasn't come to meet me." So I told him it's a very small thing. I'll ask the officer to meet you, but I suspend him. So I found out about this officer and I came to know that he is a very honest, efficient officer. So I rang him up. I asked him, why didn't you go and meet the minister? He's very upset. He wants to suspend you. Now his answer surprised me. He said, sir, I've met him on a number of occasions, but the manner in which he wants to meet me, I can't meet him. This minister wanted some money from him and he was not prepared to give money. Now, I had a major ethical dilemma here. What was the dilemma? Dilemma was that the minister was technically authorized to suspend the officer. So there was nothing illegal about it. But here is an no, 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 honest officer who would not commit any fault and he was being suspended. That was the dilemma. Now, how do you come out of that dilemma? There is nothing either way, there was nothing illegal. If I had suspended him, nothing illegal done. If I didn't suspend him, nothing illegal. There was this was basically an ethical dilemma. So I found out a rule wherein if I disagreed with the minister, I could route the file to the chief secretary. I was pretty distraught. In fact, I became a poet around that time. I was so distraught. I was I was shocked at what. In fact, some of the poem I wrote. Best of poems are written at that time. I wrote sunshine nahi man mein, teri nahi tujh mein. Tu hi tu mere man samaya, sab kuch Hun, kya है, Durachari करो, So you know, when I was so distraught, I put all my Vedana in the Jholi of Ram. But in the meanwhile, I was trying to find a way out. So I spoke to the chief secretary and I told him the entire background. He said file mujhe toh, hai kya hoga. So we were trying to buy time and see how it could be done. So I sent the file to him. Now the minister did not have the opportunity to meet the chief secretary. I don't know what was the reason, but he went and spoke to the chief chief minister. I don't know what transpired between them, but I was transferred out. Now my chief secretary was very upset. He said, just because you wanted to save that officer, you have been transferred out. He called me. So I asked him, sir, how does it make a difference for a civil servant? Transfer is like death. It is inevitable. Something which is inevitable. Why worry about it? It will happen. And moreover, I believe in Hindu philosophy. I believe in rebirth, I'll be reborn. You'll post me somewhere, you're not throwing me out of the service. So he started laughing. So it's how you approach a particular issue. I am really surprised that these days a number of officers wear these transfers as a badge of honor. I think I can't do much to a politician. I, I discovered it very soon. I have to do to myself. I have to understand why am I getting transferred frequently and do that. And then I discovered that there is has to be an understanding between or understanding the difference between accommodation and compromise. You don't have to compromise, but you have to think in terms of accommodation where your minister is not asking you to do which is patently wrong. You must try and do it. Now, in this particular case, since he was asking me to suspend an officer, I thought it was wrong. I didn't do it. But there are many cases where For example, the minister himself asked me to transfer an officer. Now, I tried to explain to him, in 90% of the cases, I could convince the minister. In 10% cases, I couldn't. He wanted his order to be carried out, but carried it out. I don't have to hang on to do the justice to the entire world. You have to see how much can you accommodate the minister. After all, he also has a constituency. I keep advising my youngsters, my young officers, don't do anything illegal. Don't do anything wrong. But there's a huge gray area between right and wrong. In that you have to see whatever you can accommodate, you should accommodate. You know, I had that problem in the beginning. I used to treat politicians as persons who was doing who were doing only things that are wrong. But gradually I discovered that they are also doing a lot of good things. In fact, if you do read my book, you'll find I came across outstanding politicians. Kalyan Singh, Malik Arjun Kharge, Prakash Javadekar. these are outstanding politicians. I loved working with them, but they were equally bad politicians as well. I'm not naming them, but there. I have hinted some of those politicians in my book, but it takes all types to make this world. If they're good, bad uh, officers, they're good, bad politicians. Also, why have this prejudice against them? So that's how it is. Okay.
1: Sir, so if you have to give like a magnified view of your job, like how does your day look like being an AS officer, say so in the beginning of your career, like if you have to just give like how a day look, what sort of task you were carrying it, out on day to day basis, like it's, a, it's a very good macro view, but like, no, no it, it, it,
0: view. Dependent, it, it was totally dependent on the task at hand. If I was in the field, the day was very different. If I was in the secretariat, the day was different. Most of my time was spent in the secretariat, but I did a lot of field work, even in the secretary. In fact, I must have been the most travelled secretary of government of India. I used to travel as secretary education, and even before that, secretary code, almost twice a week, which is not heard of. And I could do that because I had digitized all the files and papers, so I didn't have to be in the office to do my files. I could do those files anywhere. So typically, I used to get up early in the morning, uh, around six o'clock, uh, do some physical exercises. Uh, I didn't have the habit of taking tea in the morning and that saved me a lot of time in in a separate capsule that i talk about uh, managing time i keep telling that if you can manage time you can do everything you know i i i had all the time in the world i never felt short of time so to do so even as secretary of government of india i had spare time to do everything because i wanted to keep up with my habit of reading i read about 100 books a year i've been doing that for quite a time i'm i i compose music i play the guitar i am very fond of music I'm very fond of movies. I'm very fond of sports. I watch every cricket match. So I'm fond of too many things, you know. And if I don't manage my time, I won't be able to do it. So I'm not talking about time, time management. So typically I woke up early, um, had, you know, did my exercises, uh, walked if uh, the weather permitted, did some walking, had breakfast. I left for office half an hour ahead of the schedule time. I used to arrive at my office right through my career. So if the time was, say, 9.30, I used to reach the office by 9 o'clock. And I made it a point to do that regularly almost always. Second, I was never late for a meeting throughout 38 years. Never. I never had a reason to get late. And that's why I find it very difficult. Even today, when you called me, I was there 10 minutes of you. That's a habit that I've developed. I can't get over it now. I'm too old to change that habit. So my meetings all, where I chaired the meetings were very short. Half an hour, 45 minutes. Never more than that. Because I'd always believed that the groundwork should, if, if done properly, meetings are meant for decisions, not long, long discussions. And they were very focused. Uh, we never discussed Ashwara and Amitabh Bachchan. If we did, we wanted to do it separately. There were issues listed out. People get the views and a decision taken. So it was fast work. Uh, I spent the day. I didn't come home for lunch. So, But I left the office at 6 o'clock. i never stayed beyond 6 o'clock. Even as Secretary of Government of India, I was must have. I was there for four years. I must have been the only secretary leaving at six o'clock. And I held very sensitive assignments as Secretary Cole. As Secretary Cole, except for the first three months where I spent nights in the office, I didn't have uh, to stay back. In fact, after one and a half years, I had only about 45 minutes of work as Secretary Cole. People don't believe it. I had, and I used to go to PMO and tell them, wind up this ministry. because. I have digitized everything. I have automated everything. I have delegated most of the things. I get only about eight to 10 files a day. Again, no one believes in it. Uh, and because I used to delegate and others take the decision, it was easy for myself. And the logic was very simple. If there are more competent people around me who can do job better than me, then they should do the job. So I did not put pressure on myself because of the time management that I had. Very rarely did I feel pressured. So I used, and through the day, I used to have me... Whatever discussions, you know, uh, I used to have more policy related discussions at a senior level at the junior level, it was different. Back home, I used to be back by 630 evening spent with the family because that's the only time that I had with the family. Uh, As I said, I was fond of those days in the beginning. I used to watch news. Of course, I now I don't watch news. Those days in the morning, I used to read newspapers. Now I don't read newspapers. So I have more time in the world now. So I can do a lot of things now. So my, I used to have, lead a fairly regulated life in the sense, structured, my entire day was structured. And it started from my schooling days because my school times also, I was, college days I was also very structured. I used to get up early in the morning, but getting early in the morning became difficult to begin with. I, I keep telling youngsters, you're not used to getting up early. When I was pre- appearing for the civil service, I had taken law as a paper where I had to learn a few case studies, few means about 700 odd. So the best time to learn is early in the morning. So how do you get up early in the morning? I was in the habit of getting up late. So how did I do it? I have always been telling others also that if you want to change your habit, you associate a new habit with something which you like. And how I did was India-Australia matches were going on in Australia, and I was fond of very fond of cricket. India was playing five cricket test matches in Australia or five days each. And the matches in Australia began at 5.30. So I had to get up at 5.30. 25 days I woke up at 5.30, I started getting up at 5.30, 6 o'clock. So I tell youngsters, of course, you may or may not be interested in test matches because now they're T20 and 50-50. But uh, if you want to change a habit of getting up early in the morning, get a girlfriend who wakes up early in the morning, ask her to send in a WhatsApp message. You will jolly well get up early in the morning. There could be other ways of doing it, but find something attractive, likeable, I'm assuming that girlfriends would be likable, and vice versa. So you can you can ask them to send that message. And once that happens, or go for a walk early in the morning with your girlfriend. So you'll be looking forward to getting up early in the morning. So that's that's how it is. So that was typically my day. Uh, my holidays were different. Holidays I used to catch up with my reading. I used to read during the week time, eight days also. I, I was fairly social too. I used to go around and meet people, spend some time with my guitar. Uh, watch a movie if possible so i had many hobbies actually
2: oh, wonderful sir um uh, uh, sir uh, you, you have served, served from 1981 2018 uh, right uh, so you, you have experienced uh, you know, uh many generations uh and you have seen technology come and you have also spoke about technology transparency uh transparency in many of your talks too uh so you know uh you've you seen that exponential growth of technology coming in uh so i you know how how have how has it affected in your term from the 1981 2018 you have seen technology how has been your oh i
0: wish you had read my book because it's it's it, it explains how oh. i became a lover of technology i'm very bad at using technology myself but i love technology because i Number of my problems were solved through use of technology. Starting the first uh, use of technology, which I remember, was in my posting as district magistrate. And there's a chapter in my book where I got a photocopying machine installed in 1990 in the district, which had not heard of photocopying machine. And it transformed uh, the way things happened in the record room. Record room in a district is a place where people come for taking copies of various land-related documents. And at that point in time, each document was copied by hand, then checked by second person and signed by third person. So there were long documents of 7, 10, 15 pages. They had to be handwritten. There was no other way to do it. And it used to take a lot of time and a lot of speed money. Corruption was happening. So photocopying machine had come to the state headquarters, but district with were not so I got a photocopy. It transformed because applications were moved in the morning and in the evening, the copies were given. No one could believe that such a transformation would happen. Of course, there, there were people who opposed it because many people were benefiting out of the delays. All the corruption was benefiting a number of people. Now that was dispensable. That's where my, you know, stint with technology started. Then we used the first ever computer software to run an election. That's not there in my book. But as I went along, I understood the utility of technology. And I am now convinced that much of the corruption that we have in this country can be taken care of through use of technology and transparency. I did that as coal secretary We did coal block auction and not a finger was raised. We did coal block auction, which have an implication of 1,76,000 crores. And not a finger was raised because we used technology to the head whatever people we doing was totally transparent because you know, much of the corruption is an account of opacity. You don't know where your file is. You don't know what is happening to your paper. You don't know why he's sitting in my paper. You don't know what does he want. If you are aware and technology can make you aware, corruption will go. So my job was to eliminate physical interface between common man and the office. In fact, post retirement, I'm still doing some job on it on how to eliminate this interface. The moment that physical interface goes away, I think corruption comes down dramatically and you can do that. through user technology. So I, I, even the prime minister was always very fond of me in the context of technology, because in all get togethers, he would walk up to me and used to ask me kya kar rahe hai neji, technology mein? because he was very fascinated with that, what I was doing in coal, We dispensed with all file of papers. People didn't believe how can you do it with files and papers in an office? There was no file of paper. I remember when Kumar mangala Birla came to meet me along with his two chief executive officers. He didn't see any file on my table. He asked me, how do you manage to do that? So I explained to him, this is how I'll do it. Then he turned towards his two CEOs and asked them, why can't we do that in our office? Now, here was a top businessman telling his CEOs to learn from the government. Normally, it doesn't happen. Wonderful, sir. Wonderful.
1: That's a blockchain technology is being explored now for distribution, you know, say for relief packages, or like general supply chain distribution to ensure there is no breakage. And it is, I don't know, like a very detailed application of it, but yeah, to bring in more transparency, because now everybody can see where the order is. No, going.
0: Simran, you don't need blockchain uh, technology. It's for transparency. Easier, <laughs> You don't need blockchain technology for transparency. Transparency can come much before, in fact, all this discussion about artificial intelligence, I keep telling everyone, yes, have artificial intelligence by all means, but at least use the technology that you have now. Cool. Now, I eliminated files and papers and made it transparent in 2014. We are in 2021, seven years, oh, sorry, seven years down the line. We still do not have paperless, fileless existence in all the ministries of government. Yeah, yeah. This is when the prime minister talks about technology. In fact, day before yesterday or yesterday, I tweeted, "Why doesn't Prime Minister get this going? He wants it. Why isn't it happening? It can be done." So my I, my approach to technology is very different. You can talk of sexier things of artificial technology and blockchain technology. Okay. The problem with technology in this country is not technology; it is attitude. Entire okay. problem is of attitude. Technology is available. You, you, I mean, at least in the government, if you want technology, technology is available. So why do we talk technology? Let's do technology. I mean, anyone who talks to me about blockchain or artificial intelligence, first tell me, have you done away with files and papers in your office? Then we'll talk about this. Because without that, what are you talking about? You know, as they say, charity begins at home. I have to become not tech savvy. I have to use technology in a manner that I become transparent myself. Then we'll talk something else. But it's very, you know, modern to talk about artificial intelligence. Everyone talks about it. I said, what about real intelligence? I agree there.
1: We are far away Uh, uh,
2: in that. uh, But, uh, you know, uh, sir, you have gone through the civil services examination. uh, And, and, you know, uh, the process is very difficult and hard, of course. But if 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 I give you a chance and you know change that uh, you know of course you were education secretary, uh, you know, the, what what are the faults that you notice in our education system that could be changed? Uh,
0: I I, you know, I that would like I, to change. I wish I wish you had read the book. You know, <laughs> let let me look at the examination system. I have I have written about it. You know, when I took over as education secretary. Uh, someone asked me kaisa lag because before that I was in coal. And when I was posted as coal secretaries, I rang up a friend of mine, Sector kaisa? So instead of answering my question, he said, kya? So that actually settled the issue that the scene was very bad in coal sector. So when I was transferred to education secretary, I thought I was coming out of dark dungeons of coal mines into the bright lights of school education. And lo, behold, I found that this was much worse than coal. You know, in coal, all the mining was underground and the mafias were overground. In education, all the mafias were underground, eating into the essentials of Indian system. So there are about four to five chapters in my book where I delve upon various education issues. But one I was telling. I mean, all of them are interesting, but one is the most interesting. I discovered that children were getting 100 out of 100 in English literature. So I was shocked. I said, this is great. How can any child get 100 out of 100? And not one, many of them. So I dug deep to find out how is it happening. Everyone was concerned, but they were very happy. So I asked everyone, how is it happening? They said, sir, most of the boards have a system of spiking the marks. So when you go to class 12, the marks that you get, you deduct 10%. Because that's not your real score. And you would have got, where did you do Simran? CBSE or... I was on CBSE would CBSE. So your marks, whatever you got, I'm sorry to say, you would have earned only about your marks minus 9 or 10%. That's your real score. That's how CBSE works. So then I tried to find out why is it happening. They said, sir, everyone is happy. The child is happy with more marks than he or she deserves. The school is happy. The teacher is happy. The principal is happy. The parents are damn happy because the child is getting 99%, 100%, 98%. Because in my time... I was among the top few in the high school in UP and I had about 80.1%. That was the, I mean, I felt kicked because that was considered to be right now. If I tell somebody 80%, they will last me; They'll shoot me off. So I wanted to correct it. I wanted to correct this nonsense. I have called you the term farcical delusion in my book. This is a farcical delusion because you are given marks, which you don't get. And you are in a delusion that you are doing well and you discover the ground reality when you go up in life and discover that you are not as great as you were told you were. Okay. So I wanted to correct it. So I called all the board chiefs, chairman of CBSC, chairman of all the boards, Delhi had a day long discussion with them. They won't relent because everyone was benefiting. Finally, I convinced them into not doing this nonsense. Two boards actually did not, as they call it, uh, they didn't across the board hiking or spiking of the marks. There was trouble there, but you know, some influential parents went to high courts and got a stay order. So I, we tried to inquire from the court that if I am doing anything wrong, please strike it down. If I'm doing anything right, please let me do. But they were aware of the fact that Mr. And would retire in next three months and this farcical system can continue. And sure enough, after I died, the farcical system was restored. And uh, my dear friend, when you do your CBSC, you will also get probably 98-99% mark. Sorry to say without deserving so much. So that's the farce of education in India. And to correct it is very difficult because every stakeholder is benefit, benefiting out of this farce. That's why education system remains what it is. Because we've become so tuned to this farcical. I remember a senior IS officer calling me up Sir, my daughter is appearing this year. Sir, ho called. So, everyone wants wrong, not to be considered wrong in his case, but wrong in others' case. That's the problem. That's why wrong sustains. No. You ask anybody, no one will confess to being dishonest. No. No one will. Has anybody confessed to being dishonest? No. Yet, everyone calls other chaps dishonest. It's a very farcical situation in which we exist. That's how we have evolved as a society. It will take time for us to learn. Um, so, you know,
1: coming continuing with the education system thing. So, uh, there has been a lot of disparity in the quality of education, say in government schools and private schools have come up and also it's like capitalistic structure where certain people benefit when they give some sort of service. So, they have an incentive to create that structure. So, there has been also efforts to improve the quality of public schools. So, how do you think that we can bring in a leveling field at the end of the day where our public education, especially at primary level, because at higher levels we have IITs and uh, Delhi University, which is still decent enough, considered reputed, and is able to provide a certain level of education? So, how do you, but on the primary level is something I think we. Uh, haven't been able to as a country have a very good infrastructure as of now. So as yeah, a
0: youngster, you... as a youngster, you must first understand the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is not private versus public. Some of the private schools or some of the public schools are better than most of private schools. So, for example, the Kendri Vidyales, the Jawahar Vidyales, yes. are any day better than mm-hmm. most of the schools in the country. Okay. Then in the private domain also, when you talk about private schools, you talk about select private schools, very limited number of private schools. The large number of private schools, which are called budget schools, their quality of education is not so good. So we'll have to segment it much further to understand the problems of education. It can't be private versus public. It's a wrong way of defining. Secondly, I would not like to bring in a level between them, same level. That's not the right way of going about it. You can, make the better schools worse and everyone will become liberal, you know, at a lower level. Uh-huh. We have to improve the quality of education. That's the, and some steps have been taken in a few states with some remarkable results. So for example, in Rajasthan, in Chhattisgarh, in Maharashtra, in Karnataka, Kerala was always doing very well. The government schools have done very well and they have improved quite dramatically. What we have to do is to learn from how they have gone about. Education. And since it has happened, it can happen. It's not merely a general talk that we should do this, we should do this. No, no. The prescription comes from already, ap- already happening application. Sometimes we, in our you know quest for improving, come up with a prescription which is not workable. So you may come up with a great prescription, but there's no money. See, even at the cost of digressing, let me tell you, there's no dearth of ideas in this country. I mean, everyone said, do this, do this. Even for COVID, someone will say, do this. There's no dearth of ideas. The problem in a democracy like ours for an idea to fructify and sustain, it has to be politically acceptable, socially desirable, technologically feasible, financially viable, administratively doable, judicially tenable and socially relatable. That's a handful. It's not very easy because you know, you must have witnessed a lot of people from USA Indians settled in USA, come to India, try and live here to improve things feel frustrated and go back because it's not very easy to do things. So how do you go about it? You go about it learning from those that have managed to perform despite these problems. Again, if you read ethical dilemmas of a civil servant, the book is all about this, that yes, there are huge problems around, but you can still make a difference. You can still do a lot of things. You can still make it happen. In fact, there could have been an alternative title to my book, making it happen. How do you make things happen? Given the difficult set of circumstances, that's the book all about. And that is what that can be done in education. As I said, there are four or five chapters in my book where I talk about education and and indicate somewhat as to what can be done to education. Of course, it will require another hour for me to explain what needs to be done, what can be done. When I say what needs to be done, it has to be practicable, doable. It's not merely gyan being given because... Most of the people who give yarn have never had experience to do things on the ground. It's very easy to pontificate and tell this should be done. I ask these guys, tell me whether you've done it. If you haven't done it, please don't talk nonsense. Let's get down and understand. And that is why I've started a movement post retirement called the nexus of good. And this movement is about understanding the good work that is happening around us. So as to convince ourselves that good can happen because good is happening. Number one, number two, by understanding how good has happened, there is a chance that you'll be able to replicate and scale it. Now, you can have just ideas and keep discussing ideas. But Nexus of good talks about ideation from action, from something which has already happened. So I'm a great believer in making things happen, rather than only talking. It's very difficult to walk. Because these days, I'm only talking. Most of the time, I'm spending talking. I'm doing the easier job. But the difficult part is walking. Now, how do you walk? You walk by looking at people who are already walking. Improve upon that, but learn from them because it helps you to feel convinced that walking is not that difficult as it appears to be otherwise, if you look at people who are already walking.
1: I agree, now in reality, uh, knowledge that would always be different and definitely execution is the real game.
2: Uh, yes, sir. So, so you have worked in you know, 38 years, very, very, very diverse fields, you know, coal, secretary, education secretary, like, very, very, very different. Uh, so, you no. Know, where, where do you see India as a country in different sectors and different fields in 2030? In
0: after I'm, I'm, a, I'm a diehard optimist. Uh, I look at things very positively. Uh, I'm a realist in the sense of recognizing and understanding the ground reality. But I have a lot of faith in the young generation that we have. Because I interact with a lot of people like you. I see a lot of enthusiasm, hope. Desire, commitment—that is visible. I hope we are able to harness all this. Otherwise, there could be a problem. But as I said, I am an optimist. I see India going much, becoming a five-trillion-dollar economy. I see poverty virtually being eliminated by 2030. I see healthcare systems improving dramatically. I see infrastructure improving quite dramatically in the country. I see India rising to top few nations of the world. In all sense of the term so i'm an optimist i'm i'm hopeful that country will do well in future
2: uh yes sir, definitely uh so you know you you have traveled you know, different countries many countries you have also talked uh you know about it in your iim talk i think uh that you travel to us uh talk talked to gates foundation uh you know, this, this area of traveling that you like to travel in different areas of our country too, you know, what are the learnings of traveling that you have, you know, talking to people, traveling, you know, I know these are the areas that, you know, people are not looking forward to much and they are, you know, absorbing their daily life, you know, but uh, this talking to different people, you know, traveling, uh, what what are the benefits of it because you, you, have, you like doing that very much.
0: The biggest benefit of traveling within the country has been to notice and admire the wonderful work that is happening in the hinterland. Despite so many problems, despite difficulties, I've seen people performing brilliantly and it's inspiring for me because I, I lived in a lot of comfort. Here were people in much more discomfort performing so very brilliantly. So they were very, very inspiring. So I carried those stories in my mind. I still narrate on lot stories. In fact, my next book is going to be about stories of others. I'll talk about what I saw, what is happening. So I could gauge the tremendous amount of work that is happening in various fields around the country. I could also appreciate the problems that they are facing. Not that I have solution because I've always believed that if I understood the ground reality appropriately, there are more chances of me to find a solution than, you know, sitting here in Delhi and trying to find solutions. Much of the problems with the policies is that there is a disconnect between Delhi and other parts of the country. Traveling enabled me to assess the ground reality while formulating a policy. Now again, on account of paucity of time, I'm not explaining how the Rashtriya Swasthya BMI Yojana evolved. Because this traveling helped me understand the problems of the field and through a policy intervention, I tried to overcome them. So traveling uh, helped me a lot, helped me evolve as an individual helped me evolve policies, helped me appreciate the ground reality. It was amazing. And I enjoyed traveling because it enriched me. Uh, Unfortunately, because of COVID, I've not been able to travel. But before that, I was traveling even after retirement. But the beauty is that because of the Internet, I've had the occasion to interact with a lot of people like you, and that also is very enriching. But I would have loved to have physical interaction as compared to this Internet-based. Now, as far as international traveling is concerned, I mean, I did travel a lot and I looked at with admiration uh, about what these countries have been able to do more in the Southeast Asia Asian countries than in the West West has traveled much beyond us, but still uh, we can, we can learn a lot from them. But Southeast Asian countries like Malaysia, like like Thailand, uh, Singapore, uh, these countries have done very well and uh, they were similar to us. They've traveled much beyond what we have traveled. So, again, there is a lot to learn. There's a lot to learn from even countries like Bangladesh. I've traveled to Bangladesh. So much to learn from them. You know, despite the poverty, despite the problems they faced with Pakistan, they have done very well for themselves. So, there is, as I keep saying, there's so much to learn from these countries, both internationally and much more within the country.
1: What have been um, certain major influences in your life? Like any certain people you looked up to, interacted with or any particular books that you read that, you know, actually yes. the way you thought. So yes, I have
0: been influenced quite a lot by individuals and in books. Um, individuals, many of them, starting with my parents, my mother, my father, they were great influences. my uncle, who stayed with us for a while. Then my friends, I had wonderful friends, I'm still in touch with them. I learned a lot from them. Then in the service, there were some outstanding officers, which were my role models. I have never believed in a role model because every individual has some positives and negatives. What you have to do is to pick up. So I have had a number of individuals. Then books, yes. I, I mean, books influenced enormously. Well, in my college, when I was trying to improve my language because I could barely write a sentence or speak a sentence, I was trying to improve my both written and oral communication. Uh, books helped me a lot. Then, while uh, in Service, as I was an avid reader, I read books like Alchemist, Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, Secret, the wonderful, wonderful books. So I enjoyed reading these books, learned from them, and even otherwise, I, I loved reading, and uh, it was, again, s- source of learning for me. The more I read, the more I discovered how ignorant I was, and I felt very fulfilled as I uh, improved my knowledge base,
2: Reading more and more. Uh, yes, sir, definitely. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, let's go back to you know, uh, let's travel to uh, 18th century, uh, where you know, uh, democracy just was born and everything was being set up. Uh, you know, India was no, no, just uh, under uh, British rule. Uh, and if you have given chance, you uh, no, chance to you know, uh, just develop democracy, the structure of democracy, different places, the legislature, the bureaucracy, the you know, judiciary system. Uh, you know, how would you place every every of them? Uh,
0: you know. Uh, I think India has evolved wonderfully as a democracy. I can't see a parallel example anywhere in the world. Look at those of what happened to Pakistan. Look at what happened to Bangladesh. Look at what is happening in the African continent. I think India is a great example of democracy and I would not like to change too many things in the institutions. The problem here in the democracy is not so much institutions as our capability to destroy those institutions. So I don't think there's anything wrong with the institutions. There is a bit of wrong with some of us. We are trying to play with these institutions and I think we learn it. We learned it in the the seventies when emergency was imposed. We probably will learn it now as well because. We got it simple and easy because none of us sitting here ever saw how, what was the struggle to get this independence and this freedom and democracy. So we don't cherish it as much as we should. We don't really know the price of this freedom that we've got so easily. We realize it.
2: So, sir, you are telling that, uh, that, you know, the, this, the how the democracy developed through you know, many nations, first Europe, Greece,
0: uh, France, of course, uh, then, United States they, and they took much longer time. See, in yeah. you know, you look at Greece, democracy was not actually democracy. I mean, I was a student of political science, they're very limited people who had, uh, who, who had a word. Not everyone had the freedom that we think of, but yes, that's what the that's where democracy began. It was developing. Uh, uh, actually democracy is a very recent concept, so to say, and India had that sort of democracy much earlier. You know, you had these panchayats, people. Ruled democratically in those small places. So India has a history of democracy. It's not that it hasn't. It may not be exactly the manner that we have, or we'd want it today, but then given the context that it was, I think we have evolved as a good democracy, very fairly matured, much faster than any would have thought. No one gave India a chance in the fifties when we opted for universal franchise, but we've done well for ourselves.
2: Yes, of course. Uh, you know, uh, from nineteen eighty one uh, to two thousand eighteen has been, a, of course, a very big uh, journey of yours, uh, and as of India as well as you talked about, uh, you know, from the nineteen fifties that we were emerging as a nation, uh, you know, and recently we have completed out seventy years. Uh, uh, as, as a democratic country, more than 70 years as a democratic country. So, you know, we, and of course, uh, this is the time, I think, uh, that we look back at our mistakes. We did many right things too. But of course, as a nation, uh, you know, uh, we, we we make many mistakes. And that's the, how uh, I think we evolve, right? As a, uh, as as, as, a, as a, you know, just uh, being good as a nation. So, uh, so if you give a chance that, you know, uh, the, the mistakes that we made in the past and you could correct it, which were, are the one of the uh, mistakes that you would like to correct uh, of India?
0: Begin with, I think we could have possibly encouraged the private sector a bit more. We took, uh, we took it much longer uh, than we should have. So when the uh, economy was opened up in nineties, it could have been and should have been opened much earlier. Uh, this is not to deny the important role played by the public sector and the government. They had a role to play. But we kept ourselves shackled for no rhyme or reason. So that unshackling could have been done earlier, but so be it, that's how it is. I think we have still to travel some distance in terms of real unshackling. This unshackling began began in the 90s. I think we still make life difficult for our businesses and we can make life easy for them. So the potential that individuals have needs to be harnessed. I think government should play more a role of a facilitator than a regulator. Yes, regulations are important, but the primacy has to be given to facilitation. During my own career, I followed that path. I, When people used to ask me, what are you doing? I said, I'm principal facilitator government of India to help assist people to realize their potential. That should be the case. Should I been the case? Hopefully that will be the case in the future. That is one. Second, I think we should have given more importance to education. We, we messed it up. Education big time. And as education secretary, I saw that that we, I can't pinpoint the reason, but my understanding is that most of the politicians belonging to different political parties were paying much lip service to education without doing any substantial amount of good to education. And the reason perhaps was that no political party thought that their future is going to be dependent on education because the impact of bad education comes much later. And most of the political parties were prepared for, or they wanted immediate results. So everyone keeps talking loudly about, look at the current situation. The government has come up with national education policy. Why did they come up with this policy? The, when Kasturi Rangan, Dr. Kasturi Rangan met me, I told him, you're wasting your time because I knew what was going to happen. In his policy, he says 6% of the GDP should be allocated to education. Government accepted it. This year, the budgetary allocation has come down. From last year, it's shocker. So how can you handle education if that is my concern for education? So education is second area. I think we messed it up totally. We could have done better. Of course, there are areas in agriculture, and all we've done very well in milk and animal husbandry. Maybe some more things could have been done. But I think education and keeping our economy unnecessarily shackled to me are the two most important aspects that could have been taken care of when i talk of economy i think we sh- could have and should have paid laid more emphasis on infrastructure than we did
2: so sir now as as uh, uh, i totally agree with your points you know some uh, the points of education sector of course but now as as you as you are retired you know running an uh, organization nexus of good so uh, how your daily day looks like you know how have you give time to different things uh, uh, and you know uh,
0: <laughs> No, I, I have a very interesting day. I look forward to every day. Again, I get up early in the morning, a bit of physical exercises. Uh, then I uh, have breakfast. After that, I sit down to write articles. I write three articles in different publications. So I spend time on that. Then I read because I have to read for those articles and I, I read otherwise. Then uh, I have one to two webinars every day, like the one that I'm having. So they consume about two 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 and a half hours every day. So that's quite a time consumption. In the afternoon, I rest for a while, a short while after lunch. Thereafter, again, I work on the articles or anything that I have to do. Evening is uh, movie time. Uh, Both me and my wife, we sit down and watch movies on Netflix or serials on Netflix. So that's how the day goes. Lovely. Lovely. So I had a few questions, um, you know,
1: coming back to the profession. That was what are the certain sort of myths you have encountered that people have come up to you and said, Oh, I believe that IS people are like this or like that, and your beliefs are untrue, like being an insider and or like retiring. What do you think are the certain myths that outsiders hold about this whole bureaucratic system? Or, like, I initially
0: like I used to get hassled about it, but later on, I stopped bothering because I knew I have to do what I have to do. I have so focused on myself. Uh, I always believed, you know you can't do anything to others but you can do a lot of you to yourself most of our time is spent on you know blaming others for what you are so i have believed that i will not blame the mirror for anything i will focus on myself and see what i can do and that helped me improve myself because the bottom line ultimately whether in service even now is you have to evolve as an individual to be reckoned with. So I, I'm I'm very selfish in that sense. I'm totally focused on myself.
1: Okay. And what are the certain skills that you believe are extremely instrumental for any person as a civil civil servant to you know succeed in their journey or certain skills uh also, which I think would be applicable for any young professional also outside this field, which you think actually makes people stand out like it might so be. I'll,
0: I'll, I'll talk about skills and attitude. These yeah, two are very
1: important. Because
0: without attitude, skills don't matter at all.
1: Most important
0: is attitude. If you have attitude, you'll acquire skills. So you have to develop that positive attitude, optimistic attitude, attitude to learn. Enjoy learning. These are attitudes. Hmm. Then the attitude or the skills, communication skills, communication, communication and communication. If you are a good communicator, then it will make a world of a difference in what you are. I've, I've, I've benefited enormously enormously by improving my communication skills. I made a very conscious effort to do that. Communication skills does not necessarily mean what I speak or write. It's a question of your body language. Again, your attitude gets missed, whether it gets reflected in your persona. So how are you reaching out to others? That's very important because you don't exist in a vacuum. You exist in a society. So you have to be careful about yourself on what you say, how you say, where you say, when you say. So that's part of your communication skills. Uh, uh, You uh, know...
2: Uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you have you uh, no, published two books back to back from two thousand nineteen. You published your first book, uh, and then two thousand twenty, you also published your other book, and you are also writing a third book. So, how has been your journey, uh, no, journey as an author, as a writer? You uh, know, uh, you know, of course, has been uh, a different part in your life, it's a significant. You know, my
0: my first book was originally to be written on a scheme that I was doing. And in fact, most of the chapters are for that scheme. But as luck would have it, I occupied positions like coal secretary, education secretary, which were too exciting to be ignored. So then I expanded that book and that book contains chapters of my stint in coal as well as education. So that was my first book. Second book was a consequence of my interaction with senior civil servants and civil servants of various seniority. And I discovered that most of them become cynical as they go along. They start blaming the circumstances for the inability to do things which they should have done. Very easy, as Gale. So they were doing that. So, second book was in response to that, to demonstrate to them that if you are unable to do, you are responsible for it, not the circumstances. And I demonstrate it by saying that so many civil servants have been able to do things, make it happen, despite these set of circumstances. So, ethical dilemmas is. That there are dilemmas, but you can still do a lot of things. So that's my second book. The third book is about others who have done well. And it's a combination of nexus of good and making it happen. There would probably be 50 odd stories of individuals and organizations that have performed brilliantly. In fact, it will be a conglomeration of uh, articles that I'm writing these days. So I'll pick up some of these articles and make it into a book.
2: Uh, yes, sir. Uh, sir uh, the two books, the not just a civil servant, uh, uh, you know, and ethical dilemmas of a civil servant. So as I am not aspiring right now to become a civil servant, but I really like uh, you know your stories uh, of you know uh, the civil services. So you know what uh, book uh, people like me should pick up? Uh, you know of two of them. Right? You
0: know what? What should be the first one of the two books? My choice would be for ethical dilemmas of a civil servant, of course. Not just a civil servant, the sense of humor is much better. But ethical dilemmas, being a second book, is much better organized. The thought process is also much better. It's not as random as a not just a civil servant. Not just a civil servant is basically ruminations of a bureaucrat. They are random instances, random thoughts. But ethical dilemmas of civil servant has a, a well developed thought process. Yes,
1: how do you view this field of ethics? Like a lot of us are like, you know, developing values as we go forward in life and have like a moral compass. So how do you think that is there any framework of principles do you think which underline this whole field of ethics, which a person can follow to develop,
0: a I have, I have, I have never advocated or advised the set of ethical principles that anyone should follow. Each person mm-hmm. should evolve and set up his own moral values by looking at others. I mean, you may not get everything, but you have to look at others. And then define what you think. What is ethics? Ethics is your sense of what is right and what is wrong. That is what ethics is. And it can vary from individual to individual. It can vary from place to place. It can vary from time to time. Value system also changes. So, you, from the heart, in the heart of heart, have the best answer whether what you are doing or thinking is right or wrong. Others can guide you, but ultimately judgment, ultimate judgment has to be given by you. As you grow in life, as you you mature in life, you will start getting those vibes regarding what is right and what is wrong. Depending on the company that you keep, depending on the places that you visit, they will all influence your value system. Uh, Again, as I said, you don't exist in a vacuum. There will be a lot of influence, the organization that you work in. So organizational ethical value system, You'll imbibe a lot of them. Sometimes you won't have an option but to have them. So, if you, for example, if you plan to join an army, there's a particular discipline, there's a value system there. But if you become an advocate, you have a different value system. You can be much freer in your uh, uh, in your communication. In army, you have to be in a discipline. So it depends on what you choose in life, and that is where you know people can guide you as to what you should do. But ultimate decision is yours. Now the dilemma is the. Choice, what you do. And once you have clarity of thought in your mind, that again will come with maturity and experience, then you will be able to make the right choices, which you will not regret. Not because they are right or wrong, because they were your choices and you were prepared for the consequence of those choices. As I said, in the beginning, I had dilemmas. I gave that instance of further district. I was not sure whether I should make a case out against a powerful MLA, but I did make it out. There were other instances where probably I would not do now what I did then. Again, had you read the book, I would have referred to those instances and explained to you how um, uh, it is not necessary for you to always feel right about what you did. But so long as you are open to suggestions, discussions, you have an open mind. And so long as you decide what you've got to do, and finally, so long as you are prepared to face the consequences of it, you'll be a happy person. Because bottom line of everything that you do is, whether you get a kick out of it or not. And now I'm not going to explain kick. You have to read the book to understand what I mean by it. Okay. Uh, sir, you know, uh,
2: I, I know I, I am a teenager, uh, you know, preparing for competitive exams like me, J, UPSC, you know, many, many people are like you know, many of the population of India are like me right now. You know, we have young population. Uh, you know, and you have also gone through that phase of being a teenager, preparing through civil services examination. So what advice you would give to your younger self uh, if you given a chance to?
0: First of all, be focused on what you're doing. Focused. You, you, you decide that I've got to do this and then do everything to achieve that target. That focus and commitment will help you long Secondly, plan. Plan for every day, plan for every week, plan for every... Planning doesn't mean that you plan for every moment and you do that. No, no. You plan that, okay, I'll I'll read this book in the next seven days. Then you try and live up to that plan and feel good about that. Normally, people want to do big things. Don't try big things straight away. Try small victories. You'll enjoy, start enjoying those victories. You decide that tomorrow morning I'll get up early and go for a walk. Do that enjoy that moment. That Though you normally get up late, you woke up early and went out. Enjoy that moment that you overcame your desire to continue in the bed and you went out. Give rewards to yourself. We don't normally do that. Because you can't tell a lie to yourself. A reward to yourself is, a, is the best reward. Give key waving rewards. And then you will be able to discipline yourself when you start rewarding yourself. You start really good about those small things. Then you'll be able to achieve heights. So you have to be focused. You have to be committed. You have to be open to suggestions. But ultimately it has to be your decision. See guidance from somebody you have faith in. That is always helpful choose a mentor or two who can guide you. Because at your age, there will be problems. At every age, there is a problem. It's always nice to have a mentor around. But finally, never give up or give in. Accept the fact that there are mistakes, there are failures. The moment you do that, you will not be, feel kicked out after having lost a battle. You will, you will prepare yourself for a greater war. There are always lessons. You never lose. You never lose your heart. Uh, You either learn or you win. There's no such, such thing. You lose a battle, but you don't lose it. You are learning. So long as it you you use every loss to learn, you'll never lose. So either you win or you learn. That's it. Okay? So, okay, so sir. It's, it's uh, more than an hour. Yes, I'm sir. having a parched throat. So...
2: <laughs> Yes, sir, sure. Thank you very, thank you very much, Hi. sir, for coming on. God bless uh, you. A nice show.
0: And do read the books if you find time, okay? Yes, sir, for sure.
1: Yeah, definitely, you'll be yes, able
0: to relate to a lot of it now, okay? okay. Yes, yes. It was God bless you. Take care. On, we'll thank you very much, sir. <laughs>